Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you an overview of some of the great barnstorming teams from basketball history. And when I talk about barnstorming era of basketball, I am talking about the era prior to the NBA. The NBA was founded in 1946, 55 years after the game was invented. This means that there was a lot of history that took place between the day that Dr. Naismith invented the game and when the New York Knicks played the very first game of this brand new league against a team called the Toronto Huskies, a team that no longer exists. The history of basketball prior to the NBA mostly consists of barnstorming teams. I mean, yes, there were smaller local and regional professional leagues that existed since the early 1910s, and I have talked about some of these leagues here and there on this show, but our focus today is on those barnstorming teams that stood out from the crowd. The era of barnstorming basketball went from around the year 1900 until the end of the 1940s. That is about a 50-year time frame. However, the height of barnstorming basketball went from around 1920 until the end of the 1930s. That's about a 20-year window where nearly all of the very best teams in the country were barnstorming teams. So, what is barnstorming? Basically, a barnstorming team is a completely independent team that scheduled their own games against opponents and built out a tour, not unlike the way a musical act will schedule a summer concert tour or the way a top comedian would schedule a tour. The barnstorming team would contact various known teams, select some dates, locations, figure out how the tickets were going to be sold, and agree on the revenue split. Often, the barnstorming team would schedule even more games once the tour started, trying to fill in empty dates against local teams as they made new contacts while on the road. The really great and famous teams could also make a big splash by scheduling games against each other and booking some of the larger facilities to play those games. If you are a longtime listener, then you know that I have done a few episodes on specific barnstorming teams. For example, all the way back in episode 2, I shared the story of the New York Renaissance. Episode 10 was on the Harlem Globetrotters. Episode 28 was on the original Celtics. And episode 31 was on the Philadelphia Spas. Those were four of the greatest barnstorming teams to come along, and I felt that each deserved their own episode because of their impact on the early part of the game's development. The New York Rens proved that an all-black team could play as well or better than white teams. Now, this was a really important development back in the 1920s, as they proved that basketball talent could come from anywhere. The Globetrotters took that a step further by adding entertainment and showmanship to the game. The original Celtics perfected the concept of pivot play and the simple give-and-go that opened up the game to new ideas and possibilities for offensive strategies. The Spas showed everyone that a team of Jewish players could dominate Gentile teams. Now, some of these early barnstorming teams broke down barriers. The first was that they broke down social barriers and they proved that teams of any color could become a dominant team. 
The second was that they broke down barriers that were considered good strategy. Their varying styles opened up all kinds of new ideas about how to move the ball and how to put pressure on a defense. Now this brings me to today when I get a chance to share about some of the lesser known barnstorming teams that were great teams in their own right but never quite reached the elite level like the teams I just mentioned. Let us start with the Buffalo Germans from Buffalo, New York. They were probably the team that got the barnstorming era started in the very early 1900s. They were invited to play an exhibition tournament as part of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. They wowed the international audience with this brand new game as they won the Olympic tournament. They were a huge hit. The team was founded in 1895 out of a local YMCA in a German immigrant neighborhood. At one point, the Germans claimed to have won 111 games in a row. But this record is a bit suspect as the Germans often played inferior competition. Of course, the Germans were so good that practically everybody was inferior competition. They once destroyed Hobart College 134 to zero. This was a time when most basketball teams had trouble getting to just 30 points for the entire game. As the German players got older, they were not able to recruit new talent and the team disappeared from the barnstorming scene in the early 1910s. And I need to be very clear about this point. The Buffalo Germans were the first really great basketball team. They were the first team to get articles about them carried in newspapers across the country. They were the first nationally famous basketball team, and they are deservingly in the Hall of Fame as a team. Now that opened things up for the original Celtics out of New York to take over as the best barnstorming team around. The Celtics originally advertised themselves as a team featuring the best Irish talent in New York. They were founded in 1914. Eventually, they reached a point where they had to start bringing in non-Irish talent if they wanted to keep winning. And the Celtics wanted to keep winning. They brought in Joe Lapchick with a Czech background, Nat Holman, a Jewish player, and Dutch Dennard who was, well, Dutch. Along with Johnny Beckman, the original Celtics had four future Hall of Famers in their team, at the same time and all in their prime. They were an absolute juggernaut. At the time, Beckman, Lapchick, and Dennert were considered the three greatest players in basketball history, and they were all teammates. It would be like having Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Will Chamberlain on the same team at the same time and all in their prime. They absolutely dominated the 1920s along with the New York Rens. And this is a perfect segue back to the New York Rens. Again, I give this team their own episode, so I will be brief here. They proved to the entire basketball world that black players were just as good as white players, which broke stereotypes in the 1920s. At their height, they won the 1939 World Basketball Tournament, which made them officially the best basketball team in the world, the first all-black team to be so recognized. Now keep in mind that in the 1920s, which was literally a hundred years ago, but let me explain what the general thinking was around black players. Many would acknowledge that they were, generally speaking, faster and more athletic than white players. Again, I'm speaking in very broad terms. But it was thought at the time that black players were less disciplined and more prone to mistakes and turnovers. The general feeling at the time was that you could not count on them in a clutch moment. The Rens were the first team to start changing the way people thought about black players. They were an extremely significant team in terms of the social history of basketball. As a team, they are also in the Hall of Fame. And that allows us to segue to the Harlem Globetrotters, who took over from the Rens as the best all-black basketball team, and probably just the best basketball team, period. 
The Globetrotters were not actually from Harlem, they were from Chicago, but their owner, Abe Saperstein, wanted to capitalize on the fact that the New York Rens were from Harlem, New York, and Saperstein wanted instant credibility. By calling themselves the Harlem Globetrotters, they were able to book games and sell tickets immediately. But again, I have devoted an entire episode to the Harlem Globetrotters where you can hear a more complete story. This is a good place to take a break, and I will be right back with some more of the great barnstorming teams. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of you unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, ROW number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back and let us continue with some of the other great barnstorming teams. The next few teams that I'm going to talk about all have an ethnic theme to what they were doing. Now typically in the barnstorming era of 1920 to 1940, most professional leagues did not allow players of color to join them. So what was a player of color to do? Well, if you were black, you would join the New York Rens or the Harlem Globetrotters, assuming you were good enough to make those teams. But what about the other ethnic groups? Barnstorming was a place where other ethnic minorities could play because barnstorming teams were completely independent. As long as they could figure out a way to sell tickets, then they could play games. Now that takes us to the late 1930s where we get a team from San Francisco made up of Chinese American players. They call themselves the Honghua Qs. These players were Americans and they all spoke perfect English, but they played up to their ethnic distinction by speaking only in Cantonese while on the court. They were a smaller team as nearly all of their players were shorter than 6 feet, so they used their speed to beat other teams and they played an up-tempo game. The next part I'm going to share is a bit uncomfortable for me, but with every story that I share with you, I try my best to be as objective as possible and share exactly what happened. And with that, this is the way things were back in the day and I am just reporting things as accurately as possible. The Honghua Qs advertised their upcoming games with flyers that featured the phrase, Chinese Invasion, the city is under attack. They purposely played up on the stereotype in order to sell tickets so that they could play basketball. Now I am trying not to judge. I was not in those meetings when that team decided how they were going to market themselves. These were guys that had no other option for getting paid to play basketball, so they did what they had to do. It is a shame that they felt that this was the way to go about it, but I understand why they did. They just wanted to make a living playing basketball and this was the only way they sought to do that. Another team that played on their ethnic identity was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Now this was a school founded in 1879 with the purpose of teaching Native Americans to adopt typical American customs and to leave behind their Native American culture and language. Now say what you will about the school's purpose, but they put together a basketball team in the 1920s where they advertised themselves as, quote, 
Indians on the warpath. They would play white teams in some sort of a made-up ethnic showdown. Because of their financial success, other Native American tribes like the Sioux from South Dakota began to put together their own teams. There was a lot of money to be made in fake ethnic warfare. This was the concept that these Native American teams played on. Our next team played on the Jewish stereotype. This team was called the House of David. The players wore long beards and long hair. The team was born out of a religious commune in Michigan. Now this team played on the idea that Jewish players were considered to have an ethnic advantage when it came to playing basketball. Now in one way it makes sense because some of the very early basketball superstars were Jewish players. Now that fed into a reputation. In the early part of the 1900s, it was thought by many that Jewish players had an ethnic advantage in this brand new game. But this team took things to a whole new level. By wearing the long beards and hair, they looked like a team made up of Hasidic Jews, an ultra-conservative branch of Judaism. They basically tried to portray themselves as a team of super Jews as a way of intimidating the competition and the opposing fans. But this is the really crazy thing about it. The players were not actually Jewish at all. They just pretended to be Jewish to sell tickets and make money. They were popular enough that a copycat team called the Colored House of David, an all-black team that wore fake beards and wigs in order to pretend to be Jewish. But they were no closer to being Jewish than they were to being Swedish. Now that takes us to our final team of the day, the Olsen Terrible Swedes. This team was from Missouri and recruited the tallest players that they could find with Scandinavian ancestry. They played in the 1920s and the entire team was 6 foot 5 or taller. In today's terms, that would be like having a team where everyone was 6'11 or taller. They were clean-shaven players, but they played up on the Nordic Viking stereotype. The terrible Swedes would often play games against the original Celtics and the New York Rens, and they were a popular team for a while. As you can see from these descriptions, that being a barnstorming team in the 1920s and the 1930s almost required that the teams come up with some sort of a marketing angle in order to stand out from the crowd. It kind of reminds me of professional wrestling, where many of the most popular wrestlers found some sort of a character to play to stand out from the rest. I remember wrestlers in the 1980s like the Iron Sheik and Roddy Piper and the Million Dollar Man. It seemed that every wrestler had to have an angle to help promote himself. Well, that's what barnstorming basketball was like 100 years ago. You needed to market yourself with an angle to sell tickets. Whether that angle be a bunch of Vikings, Native Americans, Jewish players, or just being straight up dominant like the New York Rens or the original Celtics. In some ways, it was like basketball meets professional wrestling. Each team was completely on its own to sell tickets and make money, and they had to to do what they had to do to stand out from the crowd. It must have been a great time to be a basketball fan and to get to see some of these teams play. If I had a time machine, this is definitely an era that I would want to go see. This was a very weird but awesome era of basketball. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time when we share a profile on Earl the Pearl Monroe, a Hall of Famer and one of the members of the NBA 75 list. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey! 
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.